What does it mean Messiah matters? It means apart from him we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Do people realize that their their theology is completely engulfed and enwrapped with the Messiah? We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. It's Wednesday, January 31st. This is Messiah Matters, number 204, coming to you from the largest closet at the Torah Resource Offices. My name is Caleb Hag, and with me <laughs> and from an unknown... darkest basement. <laughs> from an unknown location on the eastern edge of the Pacific Northwest, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, buddy? Oh, good. I'm just thinking like 70s groove funk kind of thing there with our, with our thing. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, just a real quick note to people in the chat room. Helen says, uh, excited about the show today. Quick question. Are you able to give the subscribers the main topic or verses a few days in advance so we can read a little pre-show? This is a great question. And uh, usually what happens is uh, Rob and I prepare for the show. And we do- in scare quote, we prepare. <laughs> well, we're doing that a lot more now. I am yes, at least. Uh, we talk about it on yeah, Monday. We talk about it on Monday, and then on Tuesday is really a, a preparation day for uh, the show. And then uh, usually what happens is I get here on Wednesday morning to my office, and uh, that's when I compile all of my thoughts, choose a topic, like choose the, you know, choose a title, a title topic, and then uh, and then make the show notes. So um, really, before that, it's it's. Uh, it's difficult to know exactly what it's. I mean, we have a general idea even the week before, but uh, yeah, people say that would help. So uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll have to talk about it on Thursday before instead of t- uh, Monday before. We'll we'll talk about it. We'll try to get it working out for our. We, we're tr- we're here to please you guys. We're here to help you guys out. Okay. Well, we'd like to welcome everyone to Messiah Matters. This is like the uh, fourth time in a row that I've that I've started the uh, the show without without broadcasting to the radio. So I apologize to everyone who's on the radio who just got plugged in. We've only been going for a few minutes here. Um, so it's uh, January thirty first, and we're very appreciative to everyone listening, uh, everyone in the chat room, everyone on the radio, everyone who downloads this podcast on iTunes and various other podcast places, and of course everyone who watches on YouTube. So let's get the uh, let's get the uh, general things out of the way first. Messiah Matters is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Torah Resource exists to provide biblically based education for disciples of Yeshua, and we do that through many different uh, ways, including Torah Resource Institute, which is our online school. We also do it through the Messiah Matters uh, podcast, and we have two other podcasts that run every week. So and and you can uh, subscribe to. 
I know you can subscribe to at least one of them. I think both of them on iTunes. Uh, so there's Michelet, which is uh, another show by Rob and uh, our administrator, Gary Springer. And that's on the book of Proverbs. And then there's also a general Bible study that goes on every week by my father, Tim Hegg, which is broadcast as a podcast uh, on iTunes as well. And you can find that by putting in Torah resource uh, into the uh search on iTunes and you'll find the Torah Resource podcast and that's that's uh, actually going to switch this week. Tonight, I believe it's going to switch uh, to 3rd John as opposed to 2nd John. So, uh, and that'll probably go for about four weeks and uh, there will be an email for those who subscribe to the Torah Resource uh, uh, mailing list and you'll be able to put in your your input on what book you think they should switch to, that Bible study should switch to after Third John. I've seen the list of potentials so far. It is exciting. Okay. Um, and uh, Messiah Matters is also brought to you by Yeshua Shirts. Yeshua Shirts. Start a conversation today. Uh, do you have? Are you lacking a good amount of clothes that say Yeshua on them? If so, go to YeshuaShirts.com and uh, buy yourself some new clothing. And then, of course, uh, one of the main things that keeps this show going is the generous donations of our supporters. And if you'd like to help by uh, continuing to uh, this show to go on, then we would appreciate it. And you can do that by going to Torah Resource, clicking on the donate button. If you're going to do that and uh, you want to donate to help this show, then you, what you can do is you can uh, put a note in the donations comments. And we sure do like to hear from y'all. Okay. And besides all that, uh, we like to hear from you even if you're not donating. And you can do that by... Uh, Oh, my screen just froze. You can go to uh, our comment line. Call us, 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. And, of course, send us emails, chegg, that's C-H-E-G-G, -G, at torresource.com. Okay, now that we got that all out of the way. How you doing, man? Look at us. We're twinsies today. I know. Sporting this is the in uh, celebration of Tu maybe. Are we, like... <laughs> Feeling the blue here, the heavenly blue. The heavenly blue. Which is uh, nourishing our ecological uh, abundance on our planet. That's right. Those who can't see us, uh, Rob and I both have the <laughs> <laughs> the blue Tor Resource Institute shirts on. And uh, yes, embroidered. Very nice. It's a very yeah. nice. <laughs> so um, what are you reading right now, man? Um, right now I'm... Well, reading a couple things. I'm I've been I've got two different ideas that I'm putting. Uh, uh, hang on just a second. I got to stop. JBL. I got to Go stop you. Uh Michael uh in in the chat room says it's the shirts are in in uh in honor of the super blue blood moon that happened last night. Oh, that's right, which is also for the yeah. I think it's it was all happening. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure it was supposed to be the end of the world at like 3 a.m. <laughs> It's a new year for trees, man. <laughs> All right, keep going. Sorry, what, what are you reading? Oh, I'm looking at, uh, you know, ideas that I've been kind of immersed in for uh, the upcoming SBL meeting in Denver. Upcoming, several months away. It's in November, of course. Right. Lord willing. Um, but I've had some really good, uh, uh, I've got two particular things I've been focusing on, and so excited about that, and but still a lot of refining to do. It takes a lot of reading to kind of boil down. Um, 
How about you? You've got, I know you've got a potential paper here this spring. We're waiting to hear, I think in March you hear back. Uh, yeah. So I actually right. have two proposals in for the same paper, one for the regional uh, Society of Biblical Literature here in Tacoma. It will be held at the uh, Pacific Lutheran University. Um, I don't know if, I probably have a better chance of getting in on that one, but uh, I don't hey, know. Good. That's right. And then I uh, and then I submitted the same paper, but I had to submit the whole paper. So I wrote the whole paper. I submitted the whole paper to the annual Society of Biblical Literature in Denver, Colorado. I submitted to the Gospel of Luke section, which means I probably won't get in to that one because uh, it's kind of like I don't know. It's I don't want to say the mafia. <laughs> it's well. it's kind of like a family. You gotta you, you know uh, to get into the big sessions like. Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Mark, Gospel of John, the Book of Romans. I think the Romans. meals one could be good for a good place to submit also. Yeah, but the problem is, is that as I looked at that, um, I realized my paper's not really about the uh, the inter- intricacies of, of meals in the first century. It touches on it. So That's for those got to do. For, for those got to touch on it. For those who don't know, uh, the, uh, I, I submitted a, the name of the paper that I submitted is called One Cup or Two. Uh, an investigation into Luke's mention of two cups in Luke twenty-two seventeen through twenty, and so uh, yeah, good old boys, no doubt. Uh, so the uh, the chat room, sorry. Uh, basically, my my thrust is to uh, investigate meal customs of the first century to see whether or not Luke's mention of two cups would be uh, expected or not. That's the that's the main thrust of my paper. Because many scholars say that uh, it's the uh, the 19b through 20 is a later insertion by uh, well, different scholars say different things. So, but a later insertion nonetheless. So yes. Anyway, it'll be exciting. Exciting to see what happens. Yeah. Okay. Should we uh, should we go to should we go to questions? Sure. Yeah. Let's do that. All right. I don't have any music today. I my sound. I turned my soundboard off to see if I would get more CPU power, but uh, it doesn't seem to be working at all. So maybe I should turn it back on at some point. Anyway, okay. Uh, here's what it says. And I want to say uh, Susan, you know what? None of my oh, cut. None of my um, transitions are working, and I'm not sure why. So I apologize for that. Everything's just very cut and dry. I'll have to fix that at the end of the show. Okay, um, here's uh, here's the comment, and I apologize uh, that I don't have the person's name in front of me. This person says, Shalom, would you be able to talk about those moments in the New Testament that speak to Yeshua saying things like, I give you a new commandment, or X says this, but I say dot, dot, dot. I feel that it notes uh, moments that Yeshua is trumping, she puts that in quotes, trumping or overruling the Torah. Or teaching something mm, new. Good, good question. It is a good question. Um, I, I would say that uh, Yeshua is not. My first comments before we even look at the text is I don't believe Yeshua is trumping the Torah, and I don't think that he is teaching something new either. Right. It's a difficulty. We call that a, a difficulty. Textual. What do we do? Um, there's. I would suggest. S- parsing that one good question into two sub-questions. Okay. The, the first question is the idea of you've heard X, but I say Y. That's specifically Matthew 5, really, is the where, is where you'll find that. 
Right. Um, and we can talk about that. The other is where he talks about the word new commandment, which she's absolutely correct. There's the phrase that we find in the Gospel of John and in 1 John. I think, I think it's just in John and 1 John and in, and in 2 John. Um, so it's in the Yohanin um, literature that we find this language of new commandment. So those are both uh, uh, different um, situations that we have in Scripture that fall under the larger umbrella question, I think, that, that she's asking. And they both are worthy of, of zeroing in on independently. If we go to Matthew 5 first, we, we want to understand it's basically the second half of Matthew 5. Everything he says, you know, from 17, we all know this. Do not think I came to abolish the Torah or the prophets from there on out, right? And then in verse 20, he says, For I say unto you, unless your righteousness, this is important, exceeds or surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Right. So he's what he's doing, he's intensifying what we call stringency with respect to Torah, right? He's, he's, and he's to the, but he knows that his stringency with Torah is going to leave people who have preconceived notions of what Torah is accusing him of breaking it. So that's why in verse 17, he says, don't even think the thought right. that I came to destroy. And then he, but then he ups the, the bar. Well, he's, he's not upping the bar. Let me, let me re, he's not saying that there's a new level of righteousness now that I'm going to teach you. He says the, the bar is higher than what the Pharisees and the scribes have, he says. The, the, the exacting nature of God's Torah has a bar that the Pharisees and scribes are not uh, at. And so when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom— he hasn't moved the bar. Yeshua hasn't come and made it, okay, now you have to jump higher. What he's saying is the Torah demands something more exacting than our traditional way it's been te- taught in the synagogues. And what is, is the that? First century. What is that? And well, then he, so then he goes and gives some examples. Well, or hang on just a second. Hang on. What, what, I, what I think he's getting at is that you can't just do stuff. You do a commandment, you do a commandment. It's not, that's not good enough. It has to be from the heart. The commandment is important, right? The commandment right. is the Torah, but it has to be from the heart. In other words, right. and and obviously, as as we go on in the Gospels, we we learn what what Yeshua is actually saying. Unless you have me, unless you do things through me, in other words, unless the Holy Spirit indwells you, then it doesn't right. it doesn't matter. Because exactly, this gets to when he talks about the new covenant. What is Je- Jeremiah thirty one? Is the idea of the Torah. Um, transitions from being something that's outside and against the person, condemning them of their sin, justly and rightly so, because God can't, he's not going to negotiate on his holiness. He's not going right. to, he can't budge, he can't compromise his righteousness, right? God can't change his standards because they're who he is. Right. So the promise of Jeremiah 31 is that God himself is going to write his Torah on the hearts of his people so that they will receive forgiveness, right, the eternal forgiveness, and they will walk in his ways, right, from this new creation heart. That's the core here. And so when Yeshua gives, after he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, you can't enter the kingdom of God, he gives a series of examples, 
And the first example is 521. You've heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, right? He gives it, he gives it a, a citation of the Torah, and then usually he, he gives some sort of traditional interpretation that has been kind of circulating with it. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Okay, well, that's, a, that's an, an application. That's not a literal Torah uh, phrase, that second part. And then he says, but I say to you, and then it's more, he gives the precision of what's going on in the heart, just like Caleb, you were just saying, because Yeshua is saying, look, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God knows every thought. You can't hide from him. God knows the, the difference between your spirit and your soul. Like it says, the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. He says, you can't, uh, you can't hide from God, right? Right. Uh, God sees all things. And if you're wrapped up in pleasing these little people community groups and being in a clique of who's in and who's out and whether I'm whether my seat seat are long enough or how these other pe- how I'm being perceived, if you're in that world of acting, what well, he calls it hypocrisy, which is the word of acting and pretending for the sake of fear of man, um, then you are absolutely missing you're blind right you're missing the core of of relating with the god of israel and so that the first example is murder then he says commit adultery and then he says he goes right to the heart issue right um and he goes he gives the example from divorce vows um eye for an eye i hear yeah i hear hear all these examples i hear it almost like you've uh, the tour has been the tour has been interpreted to you like this but this is what the Torah really is. Exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. So it's not overriding the Torah. He's not, uh, how did she say the phrase? I don't remember the exact phrase in her email. But yeah, he's not going against the Torah. He's, he's. Well, he he's, gave the Torah to Moses, a, right? <laughs> he's making a bold claim. Yeah. He's making a bold claim. He's he basically, in Matthew 5, Yeshua is saying this. Look, you come to Israel to learn Torah. You can learn it from the scribes, you can learn it from the Pharisees, or you can learn it from me. And if you learn it from me, you're going to run into some conflicts because the way I'm teaching you Torah is going to rub against the grain of some of these institutionalized uh, Torah teaching in, you know, places um, that have been around, right? And, and obviously we're talking Second Temple era. And that's where the rub is. It's right. against the grain of those of some of these popular traditional uh, understandings, and that they were limited. Those were human attempts to apply the Torah to help kind of manage and uh, you know a, a create a sense of national identity for Jews, etc. Um, but Yeshua is coming and saying, "What I tell you is Torah is Torah." Right. And it's eternal, and my words will not pass away. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, that, that's so. That's how we understand Matthew five, is that Yeshua is not moving the bar. He's just saying, "Look, these guys. This is don't the bar. See how high? Yeah. Yeah. These other guys don't see where the bar is. They've inter- and, and it, gonna, It's like this. They they've interpreted the Torah like this. 
But when I gave it to Moses on Sinai, what I meant was. <laughs> yeah, you can, yeah. The other, she, she also pointed out this idea of the new, co- new commandment. And like John 13, 34 is, is like one, one of the main ones I think people think of. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also right. love one another. So that what we're challenged with, and John knows this when, he, when he's recording this, because it's not in the synoptic gospels, right? It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He's, he's saying, look, Yeshua gave us these the words like this that, are, that cause us to say, wait a minute. Love That's not new. Love one another. That's not new. Yeah. So what does he mean new? And then he's like, well, as I have loved you. So the idea is, and this goes back to what we find even in First John. He says, we love because he first loved us. Right, yes. In other words, we, we don't come in the world flesh and blood, we're not born knowing how to love. We, we, as a, as an infant, we are dependent on the love of parents, right? Of parents taking care of us, the care and nurture, but the ceiling of our ability to understand what love is, is how it's modeled to us in our little social network, in our family, in our extended family, in our community. And sadly, that's not equal. Not every child, sadly, but it's the nature of our sinful world. Not every child is born into the same loving home where they learn the same basic ways of relating humans with humans. You know, a good, and Yeshua comes and Yeshua sets the standard. Yeshua shows once and for all what love means. Go ahead, Caleb. Well, I was just going to say we, we, uh, for those who, I, th- we've we've had this discussion in, in uh, class at Torah Resource Institute in Gary's class on on uh, on uh, uh, counseling. Uh, basically, he talks about the different kinds of love that that uh, that different people have and how they relate that love to people, right? And your your idea of you know we love according to how we've been loved by parents and whatnot made me think about that. But but God has perfect love, right? God is love. And so his love is perfect, it's true, it's right. And so when he says, you know, uh, just as I loved you, you know, love others as I, just as I loved you. In other words, it's... it's He's saying, be like me, copy It's perfect, me. yeah, it's perfect love. Yeah, yeah good. Well, well said. Yeah, well, and that, that does tie back to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, mm. right? He gives his, he gives, you know, if someone's cursing you, don't you, you bless them back because as a son of Abraham, the, Abraham was commanded, you be a blessing. God says, I will curse those who curse you, right? right. I will take care. I, let me take care of those. You be a blessing. That's our, that is Yeshua's reorienting um, his people to the proper prioritization of, of Torah so that we can abide in the, the truth of the Shema, right? To, to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength by the power of the spirit within us. And then for us to learn how to love each other, one another to give love and to receive love, receive love. Cause right. Caleb, just like I'm commanded to love you, you're commanded to love me. So that means I need to learn what it means to be a giver of love, but also a receiver. Um, so, so someone else can fulfill their commandment and I be the recipient of that. And that is this fellowship that we have. Um, that is a, a wonderful thing. And so to a degree, in some ways, that is what is new, that Yeshua is, he, he's coming and through the power of his spirit. And this is breaking through 
these walls that were there in the first century that that were kind of prevented. You know, it's the thing. It's why Peter needed the vision in Acts 10. Peter would have right. been hesitant if if he wouldn't have had the. I, I read Acts 10 like this first and foremost. If Peter would have not had this vision, these guys would have knocked on the door. And Peter would have said, "There's no way I'm going with you. Yeah. I'm not going to go with you guys, right?" <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, look what happens in Galatians. Paul tells us he's like, "Well, yeah." When the guys, when the pressure was on, people from Jerusalem came. Peter disappeared. He's like, "Man, no, I, Gentiles. I don't eat with Gentiles, right?" Right. He still hadn't sorted these things out in his heart. It's not that he wasn't saved. Of course, Peter was saved, but he he still had to go through this learning because the deep, deep. Uh, cultural kind of inculcation of fear of mixing and mingling with Gentiles right. was was in the, was among many Jews. Not all Jews, obviously, but it was a, a very big issue. And the concern of am I breaking Torah? Right? They they left God. They didn't want to break the Torah. So the idea, the the notion of well, I don't want to go in into a Gentile's house and have dinner. I mean, even in Acts eleven when. Uh, Peter comes back to Jerusalem. The brother's like, yeah, we heard you went in with uncircumcised and ate. What's up? Yeah. Account, give an account. What are you talking about? Right. And then he tells them. And so this is an important uh, thing of what this love looked like. This love looked, as Yeshua says in the beginning of Acts, at the ascension, he says, you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the world. And this is a new thing. It's a new moment Right. Uh, but it doesn't, but it's not incomplete. It's not discontinuity. In other words, there's not a new Torah. Although I will say this, you'll find if you look in the early church fathers, I think in Didache maybe and Barnabas, some of the early, you know, second century and beyond, you start seeing this idea that there's a new Torah. Right. And I, I, I don't like that idea. I think that's, there's a reason why we don't have any canonical <laughs> texts that talk about a new Torah. Um, because in Jeremiah 31, it's a new covenant, or Brit Chadashah, if you want to say renewed or new, that's a separate issue. But the idea is that the Torah is just transferred in location from external to written God's on, people. Written on stone to, to written on to, heart. To yeah. written on the heart. It's right. gone to internal. And, that, and there's a priesthood that mediates that covenant that the sons of Aaron can't do. The sons of Aaron, even the best son of Aaron ministering in a tabernacle can't see the heart of the person who's bringing the offering. Exactly. They can ask questions, you know, are, you know, are you, uh, do you have a grudge against your neighbor? You know, are you, uh, you know, are you wanting to kill somebody right now after you offer this? You know, they can ask, <laughs> field some questions, but they can't see the heart. Whereas the Brit Hadashah is, is mediated through a, a priesthood that, deals with the heart and works outward. Okay. Um, I want to actually, Sean, in the um, chat room, this is a great question, and maybe something that we need to reiterate for people who are newer to our show. Um, but he asks this. He says, hi, guys, I'm new here. Do you believe that the Jews have one set of rules to follow and the Gentiles have a different set of rules to follow? That is, Jews should, eat por uh, should not eat pork, but it is okay for Gentiles. Nope, we're one Torah. And what one Torah uh, theology states, and you can find this, actually there's a great place that you can read about this and what we believe on this matter, uh, right on Torah Resource. If you go to TorahResource.com and you hover over the tab that says About, there, uh, there's a drop down, and then you can go down to One Torah. And if you click on that, there's a whole page that talks about our belief 
on the place of Torah in the life of a believer. Basically, uh, what uh, Torah Resources, the company that uh, both Rob and I work for, and Torah Resources as a whole uh, teaches one Torah theology, that is that we are justified by faith alone and not through any work. So justification, we're also, and I, a lot of people are surprised by this, Torah Resource, uh, including my father, Tim Haig, which I think, I don't know why that shocks people sometimes. Uh, uh, Torah Resource as a whole is uh, holds to the doctrines of grace. That is uh, what... Uh, what many people would refer to as Calvinism when it comes to how God saves the elect. So when it comes to the doctrines uh, of grace, the doctrines of grace, when it comes to um, what we believe in terms of how God saves people, we would be classified by most as Calvinists. Um, So we believe that you're saved by faith uh, through grace alone and that it is a work of God first that, that turns us and gives us faith. And then once saved, once uh, once justified, I should say, once justified, there's a work that goes on within believers, and that work is a uh, mutual work between the Holy Spirit and believers themselves. And we believe that sanctification uh, is done through the Torah. In other words, Jews and Gentiles alike uh, ha- are sanctified through uh, through Torah. Everyone's on a different walk, and so uh, our Christian brothers and sisters uh, who uh, reject, well, they say they reject uh, the Torah or that the Torah has been done away with. We know that this isn't true, though, because they still believe in things like love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. But they reject certain parts of the Torah, like eating pork or um, the Sabbath or the festivals. Um, Everyone's on a different walk, and many of us have have been— And and I I liken that to, like— Peter, who in Galatians too, you know how Paul describes Peter. Peter is saved, but he hasn't worked out some theological deals, right? And so he's hesitant. He doesn't. He's like not sure if he should be doing a certain thing or not. And so his behavior changes, and other people's behavior change. And this is a lesson for all of us um, to realize that just because we're saved doesn't mean automatically our theology is instantaneously like clear and cohesive and um you know birthed right out of the of the scripture so we have a we um, have uh helen asks uh, another good question and and i I know that we've for people who listen on a regular basis we've I know we're we're going over uh, stuff that we've talked. To. Where's where's our clip of George? Okay. Oh, I've, we've already discussed this, um, but that's okay because these these are good uh, these are good foundational issues to talk about, um, and especially for people who are newer to the show. Um, so Helen says, so the uh, so the faith shown before Yeshua to come, it wasn't on the heart at all, but they believed with faith. Okay, so we believe that and no, faith is a gift. Yes. Faith is is always a gift. But but the point is is that uh, well, actually my father's done Tim Hag has done a great um, a great series on this. It's a four DVD series called The New Covenant: God's Promise Fulfilled. And uh, if you haven't checked it out, I can't recommend it enough. It is absolutely excellent. Um, you can actually watch the first uh, installment of that. The first of the four. Uh, lectures on our YouTube page, on the Messiah Matters YouTube page. And then if you like it, you can uh, get the rest of them. Um, But I agree with my father wholeheartedly in the idea that the new covenant written on the heart is not time bound. In other words, I believe fully that people, Abraham, when he believed and had faith in the coming Messiah, that the Torah was written on his heart and he was uh, entered into the new covenant. And I believe anyone throughout time who has believed that the Messiah would come and deal with sin 
or anyone after the Messiah came that believes that Yeshua is the Messiah. The Torah has been written on the heart, and they are part of the new covenant. And for those who would like to know more about that, once again, I recommend the new covenant, God's promise fulfilled. Uh, you can find it in the DVD and audio lecture section of the store on TorahResource.com. Okay, let's go now to um, what <laughs> what Rob sent me. Rob says, oh, I got this quick little thing for you. It's it's a real quick read. He sends me like, I, it's got to be 30 pages. I, I don't know how much he sent me, but this is, it, it wasn't a quick read at all. Yeah. And it was dry. Um, <laughs> it was. But he sends this to me. It's called uh, Christ Among the Messiahs. Christ well, I sent you a chapter from it, yeah. You are right. Christ, the, book. the book is... Yeah, Christ's language in Paul and Messiah language in ancient Judaism. This is right. by Matthew Novenson. It yeah, actually was is, very good. And there it is uh, on Rob's side of the screen for those who want to check it out. It's like I, 2012 Oxford University, I think. Right, you're right. Um, it's a good book. I, I, um, I think so. And actually... The, just to clarify, Novenson tries to play... He What he wants to do, he says... Paul talks about Christos a lot, but some people say, oh, for Paul, it's just a last name. Jesus Christ, Christ is his last name kind of thing. <laughs> right. You know, so he, he gets into that. Okay. But he says in order to do it right, we have to look at how in Paul's day the language of Messiah or Christos was used among Jews. And so okay. what he tries to do is paint Wait. that picture and put Paul inside it. Before you go on, because I just wanted to show people a little bit why their show notes have a wide swath of things in them. And if you don't get our show notes, you definitely should go to TorahResource.com, hover over radio and go down to Messiah matters, click on there and you can sign it for show notes on that page. Um, Rob also had me read this article and this is totally different. They are connected in a roundabout way, but uh, he had me read this article. We, since we're members of the society of biblical literature, Rob and I both, we get the jets. That is, well, I'm sorry, the Evangelical Theological Society. It's the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. We get this every quarter, and it has different um, different articles in it. And there is an, a fantastic article. It is fantastic. It's called Sola Scriptura and the Reformation, but which scripture and what translation? By Ben Witherington right. III. If you remember, uh, 2017 was a time... Uh, for uh, within Protestant strains of faith to celebrate the 500 years of the Reformation. Right. And so it's in that spirit that I think Witherington was in, was uh, inspired, not but like, you know, excited about uh, diving into this issue, this uh, call of the Reformers, Sola Scriptura, with a, a compare-contrast between the texts available— Right, five hundred years ago, to these reformers in Europe, versus the crazy amount of text available to us today. Um, right, and the contrast there. It's like it's like so we we get all these Bibles essentially from five manuscripts. Fast forward five hundred years, and now we have five thousand manuscripts. Right. Right. Could you imagine like one of the reformers, if they had 5,000 manuscripts to go through, they wouldn't have had, they didn't have computer power. They think of the financial uh, backing you'd need to have enough scholars and then you'd have to organize. Uh, It's just, it shows how, how God gives just enough. Right. Right. For the time. Right. He gives something appropriate 
to the time. They weren't overwhelmed. They had to, in fact, they had to stretch their resources just to get to the five right. manuscripts. Right. It took a lot of teamwork. Um, they didn't all agree, right? Because you had Erasmus creating his his printed edition of Hebrew uh, of the Greek New Testament, you know, with different variants and things. You had this uh, scholarly air uh, uh, in the air, this desire to be um, responsible, to be good stewards of the text traditions they had, but they didn't know. I mean, it just wasn't on their radar. All these, you know, the um, Vaticanus, um, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, right? They didn't have uh, many, many, many of the great manuscripts that we now look at. So Derek in the in the chat room, who we had uh, lunch with several times last uh, November when we were in Boston, Derek says, I got my copy of Jets, but haven't dug in. I'll start with that article. You know, the one thing that hung me up about that article, and we're not going to talk about this today, and we're not going to talk, well, I don't even think we're even going to get to this article, uh, because I want to talk about this Christ among the messiahs. Um, but one of the things that hung me up was his comment that uh, the apocryphal works were in the were in every major Bible translation up until 1826. And... Now, I've studied the, the formation of the canon before, um, but that really got me thinking, and I found some articles online that uh, I thought this something's not adding up here in my understanding of why the apocryphal books aren't in the canon. And uh, sure enough, I was right. Uh, so for Derek and for anyone else who has that article who gets to the second to the last page and, and reads about uh, some of the modern translations and the, and the presence of the apocryphal works in there, 12 of the 14 at least, um, I would highly recommend, and you can email me, I'll send you a copy of this, I'll scan it for you if you want. It's just a chapter in um, the an Introduction to the Apocrypha by Bruce Metzger. Fantastic. And, and he starts uh, right about page, I don't know, 175, 176, somewhere in there, about talking about the Apocrypha and, and why it was put into the Bible and then why it was taken out. And it's uh, very eye-opening and, and really good. And, and actually, I do hope to uh, I hope to talk about that sometime on this show coming up, um, because I think it's important for people to know why, you know, the Catholic Bible the Catholic Bible has the apocrypha in it, and the Protestant Bibles don't, and these kind of things. And we're seeing we're actually seeing in the Messianic movement we're seeing sort of a resurgence to try to uh, go back to books that have not been canonized by the majority of believers like the Et Sefer Bible, and um, there's others, right, that are putting in different books. Okay, um, let's <clears throat> pump the brakes here, and let's move back to this book, which it, uh, Rob already put up, Christ Among the Messiahs. Now, he starts by quoting someone else, and I want to start with this well, quote. Well, this is just this chapter. That's Right, this is, uh, this is just, right. The, this, just the chapter. This chapter is chapter two. two. This is it's called Messiah Language in Ancient Judaism. And uh, this is the quote that uh, he basically, he, he makes a quote by somebody and then he says, in other words, and, and he's going to explain this person's quote. He says, in other words, and this is not a quote from the author himself, but um, he says, in other words, Jewish Messiah language in the Hellenistic and Roman periods meant so many things that, that it effectively did not mean anything at all. And this is really how he starts off this chapter and uh, then he because right, people in the 20th century kind of came to that con conclusion. That's the, and that's not Novenson, right? Like you just pointed out, that's Novenson just sets the stage for people kind of 
kind of wring their hands up and say, you know, I, we don't know. Um, but he's saying, no, actually, we can say something positively about messianic expectation. Right. There's a way we can do it in a way that's kind of, you know, he's, he's a conser- kind of a conservative scholar saying, you know, what, what can we show from the text without trying to come up with crazy headline sensationalist uh, right. ideas? Right. So basically what he's going to say in this, like, and now, okay, why don't I give you the overview of what I kind of took away from this? And then you can um, kind of tell me, uh, there's a couple of sticking points here that are, that are really, really interesting. Um, what I understand him saying is that the word Messiah actually comes from a Semitic tradition, right? Of anointing, right? All the way back mm-hmm. to the kings being anointed in, kings, uh, right. in, in the yes. Torah, right? And so a king was the anointed one, right? And we see this in the in the Tanakh. So we, and technically we have Mashach uh, used for the, you know, we have the Shem and Meshichah, which is the anointing oil for the tabernacle. So the things pertaining to priests, the anointing of Aharon, etc. So we have anointing both in the priesthood world and in the setting apart of kings of Israel. Right. So, um... What I understand him saying is, is that by the time we get to the first century, the idea or the, the term Messiah meant totally different things for different sects and different people. And what I think he's saying is there was, at least by 200 BC, we start to see some groups using this word Messiah and then using texts from the Bible to substantiate what they thought that was. Yes. But it but it wasn't necessarily monolithic. It wasn't across the board to every mm. every sect of Judaism. Is, am I on right. point yeah. so far? But the, but what he says is that even though that's true, he, there there emerges a cluster of passages from the Tanakh that seem to be go-to passages. Right. So among, uh, for, for different people from different groups while they're talking about Messiah, they can go to the same, they kind of share the same scriptures that they all go to. There's a cluster of scriptures. That's the right. Term okay. So, uses. so here I'm going to, I'm going to uh, give a couple of quotes here. Now he's quoting mm. other people too. So he just, he quotes somebody and he says, and again, nowhere in the old Testament has the term Mashiach acquired its later technical sense as an eschatological title. That's a quote, end quote from, he's quoting someone else. In other words, on one popular definition of Messiah, there is no Messiah in the Hebrew Bible. Scholarly, I'm going down a little bit. Scholarly insistence on this point, however, has obscured the fact that the later Messiah text nevertheless consists mostly of interpretations of of scriptural texts. In other words, there may not be an uh, be any messiahs in the Hebrew Bible, but some Jewish authors of the Hellenistic and Roman periods evidently thought there were. So, talk about that for a second. I mean, do we see obviously when Yeshua comes? And I, what the thought that I had on that was, well, I see what he's saying in that the disciples, a lot of them thought something about the coming one, about the Messiah, right? There was mm-hmm. some, we see in the apostolic scriptures, there is some messianic expectation of what the Messiah will do, right? He's going to come, he's going to conquer, he's going to be king, these kind of things. So there was some, at least among the groups of, of the disciples and whatever sects they may have been a part of. There's some expectation of what the Messiah, of who the Messiah is, and what he's going to do, but they keep getting it wrong. 
right? Yeshua has the full view. He has the true view of, of what the Messiah is. And he knows that the Messiah is going to suffer. You know, he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? Because Peter's like, let's, it's time to go. Grab the sword. Let's go conquer. You know, let's go take Jerusalem. And he's like, no, 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 you don't get it. You, you have not understood properly. So there's, no matter what our author here says, there is some form of a coming Messiah that we know was prophesied in the Tanakh because Yeshua came and he fulfilled a substantial portion of that. Exactly. I'm glad you point out, and I think we've chatted, we've touched on this before, that that interaction between Yeshua and Peter. Right. Where, you know, when Peter says not so, you know, when, when Yeshua says the Son of Man is going to suffer and, and etc., where does Kepha, where does Peter have his ground to push back against that? It's because he has a concept of what Messiah is that he believes is right. And he's putting it on Yeshua. Right. But Yeshua is like, look, you might have a couple things right, but you, this you've got wrong. And, um, and so we have it even there in the most, you know, uh, uh, closest intimate, you know, master-disciple relationship here in the first century, you have this clash of ideas of who the Messiah is, and it and the Gospels show that clash very clearly. And so if there's a clash between Yeshua and Kepha, how much more could there be a clash between different uh, sectarian groups right. that talk about a Messiah, but don't even know who Yeshua is, right? So um, I think that's a, a good point. So what I, the other thing that I get from him <clears throat> is that what he's saying is that there were specific texts that from the Tanakh that were used to basically um, shape the idea of what this coming Messiah would be, as we would expect, right? If there right. is a Messiah that's prophesied in the, in the t- Tanakh, as we believe there was, then obviously there's specific texts that are going to be used to shape that idea. And what he says here is, and this is a very interesting point, also relevant here are the uh, patronymic, I don't know what that means, formula that occur in some ancient Messiah texts, Messiah son of David, Messiah son of Joseph, Messiah son of God, which are best understood as shorthand allusions to particular scriptural traditions. And then he's going to give the the, uh, scriptures that are most often uh, used to shape this idea of the Messiah in the first century, right? So he gives Genesis 49.10, and I'll read, I'll read these. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the uh, commander's staff from between his feet, until that which is his, his comes, and the obedience of the people is his. Numbers t- uh, 24.17, I think we all know this one. A star will go forth from Jacob, a, and a scepter will rise from Israel, it will shatter the borders of Moab and a, and tear down all the sons of Seth. And then Second <laughs> Samuel seven uh, twelve through thirteen, and we I I love this passage. I will raise up your seed after you, and once again, the, in my opinion, the seed refers once once again back to uh, Genesis three. Uh, so I'll re- raise up the seed after you who will come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then he gives Isaiah 11, one through two, Amos nine eleven, and Daniel seven thirteen through 14. 
and, and I, I have to read the Daniel passage. I saw in the night visions and behold one like a son of man. I love that. Who is coming with the, uh, with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and honor and kingship. So, um, and we see the same thing uh, in in the other two passages that I didn't read. All of these, what they do is they present a king, someone who's reigning, right? Right. And so this, to me, says that it's no wonder that uh, that these were the. And none of these used the word Messiah. That's one yeah. of the interesting things here that uh, Nolanson points out. Um, now again, the 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 book that he's that Novinson is citing here is by uh, Gerburn Ogema. I don't know how to say it. it's O E G E M A, and the book is called uh, "The Anointed and His People." I don't know. Uh, I, I don't have that book, uh, but it's called "The Anointed and His People." I think it's 1997 or 1998. But basically, he looks not through a canonical lens, like I'm just going to look at the New Testament or something. He looks at ancient Jewish and Christian literature as a whole, like a broad kind of library, and says when people are quoting the, the Tanakh about the Messiah, what are the most frequent texts that come up? And what emerge is this cluster. Right. That, Caleb, that you just read, the Genesis, the Numbers, the Second Samuel, Isaiah 11, Amos 9, and Daniel 7. So, so this cluster emerges that is shared both in Yeshua discipleship groups and in like Qumran, you know, groups that don't have, or early rabbis that aren't related with the gospel message. So what does that say? If you have, if you have this cluster that exists in each of these groups that have very, uh, uh, you know, important differences that, that limit fellowship between them, but they all share this common, uh, cluster it says that there was probably an older set of expectations that drew on these scriptures, right? These various scriptures right. before these fragmentations occurred between the groups. In other words, it's an older shared tradition is why it's found in each of the, of the group. So um, I think that's a good point. And, and the idea that these, each of these clusters, if you look at it, you don't see the word Messiah used in them. So, um, I think that when Paul, just one more side to here, <clears throat> Paul uses the word mystery, mysterion in, in Greek. <clears throat> and he talks about the mystery of the Messiah that right. has been revealed. And I think that what he's getting at here is that this is what it was. That the only other place we see the word mystery really in the Bible is in Daniel is the, um, and, and Araza in Aramaic, which is, what is that? It's where they know that there's something they know that's there, but they don't know what it is. In other words, <laughs> they know it's an, it's a known unknown. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like the example in Daniel, cause in our Aramaic class now we're reading in Daniel two. And th that's why it's fresh on my mind is this is where the King says, okay, um, he's deeply troubled by his dream. He tells all the, the Chachamei, Bavel, the, the sages of Babylon, tell me, tell me my inter tell me the dream and the interpretation. And the guy, the guys are like, well, oh, good King, you know, tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, no, you're just wait, you're just burning time. 
um, you're going to tell me the not. Uh, you're going to tell me the dream I had. I'm not going to tell you anything. You're going to tell me the dream and its interpretation. Right. And they're they're shaking in their shoes. And then Daniel, and then he puts a decree out, right, to put to death those these these uh, Babylonian uh, diviners. And Daniel and and uh, Azariah, uh, Hananiah, and Mishael, of course, hear about it. And Daniel prays and says, you know. Uh, God of heaven, teach us, you know, reveal to us this mystery so that we can tell the, the, the dream and its interpretation to the king. And that's exactly what happens. So this idea of the mystery is it's a known unknown. It's something that is causing disturbance. People, it, they can't get rid of it. They know that it's there, but, and they're trying to put, they're trying to put labels on it to make it, to see what sticks. And so the promise of we have to remember back to we talked a couple of weeks ago this expectation that that the exile wasn't completely over yes we're back in the land yes we've got a temple but what's going on we had brief time uh, with the uh, Maccabees where it seemed like we were going to be uh, an independent nation but now Rome came and crushed them and it's just like the mighty arm of Rome is is like ruling our country that seems like there's a corrupt priesthood but yet if god's promises of blessing for the for the uh, children of abraham isaac and jacob how can these both be true surely he's going to send a deliverer certainly god is going to somehow do something and that's the hope i think that like why peter had the pushback to yeshua wait a minute wait what are you talking about dying Aren't we, aren't we going to like establish the kingdom of Israel and like let the nations know that no one's going to bully Israel anymore because we are the blessed ones? You know, there's that hope that is part of that known unknown. And uh, anyway, so I think when Paul uses this word mystery, he's not saying that it's still a mystery. It's not remaining hidden. It's now revealed. In other words, it's Yeshua. Yeshua is this, which was before this known unknown. Now it's it's Yeshua. We know it, and we can you know shout it from the rooftops, as he says. So um, I want to. I mean, I know we weren't planning on doing this, but I'd actually like to read. Uh, you know, uh, Novinson brings up First Enoch, and First Enoch seems to parallel uh, with. There's a lot of. There's a lot of things in here that, uh, and now remember the first Enoch was, was extant in the first century. Okay. And so how widespread it was, who knows, but we know it, it was found at uh, Qumran, right? Like, well, we have fragments, yeah. uh, from different, uh, Enoch, Enochic texts, but they weren't called first Enoch. Or right. Like, you know, we don't have it that way. Um, so first Enoch 48, one through 10 is a text that usually is gone to. Um, and we have imagery that parallels uh, that of, of Daniel. Uh, so it says, furthermore, in that, in that place, I saw the fountain of righteousness, which has not become depleted and is surrounded completely by numerous fountains of wisdom. All the thirsty ones drink of the water and become filled with wisdom. Then their dwelling places become with the holy, righteous and elect ones. At that hour, the Son of Man was given a name in the presence of the Lord of the spirits before the beginning of days. Even before, even before the creation of the sun and the moon, before the creation of the stars, he was given a name in the presence of the Lord of the spirits. So, I mean, obviously, Enoch, we're not taking as canonical, right? But uh, it's interesting that it, it has 
before time, right? So almost this idea of eternal, an eternal one, right? He will become a staff for the righteous ones in order that they may lean on him and not fall. He is the light of the Gentiles, and he will become the hope of those who are sick in their hearts. All those who dwell upon the earth shall fall and worship before him. So he's given worship, right? Uh, they shall glorify, bless, and sing the name of the Lord of, of Spirits. For this purpose, he became the chosen one. He was concealed in his own presence prior to the creation of the world and for eternity. And he has revealed the wisdom of the Lord of the Spirits to the righteous and the holy ones. For he has preserved the portion of the righteous because they have hated and despised this world of oppression and hated all its deeds and its ways in the name of the Lord of the Spirits. And because they will be saved in his name and it is in... In his good pleasure, they will have life. Now, that was through seven. Right there, we start, I mean, do you think that that uh, this was a, see, I mean, it seems that this was seen as a Messiah text and that they are maybe taking from imagery from Daniel and from other places, the staff. Uh, you oh, know. exactly. Yeah, it's very much drawing on, he will be a light to the Gentiles, right? right. This is Isaiah. So, um Yeah. Yeah. But this the point is an is, example of, but, of drawing on messianic or, or drawing on specific uh, hopes and glimpses from the Tanakh and weaving them into some sort of story. But the point is, is that now you've taken all these texts, whether or not they and they haven't said Messiah in the actual text. Right. But someone right. has now taken these these texts and compiled them into what looks like a messianic expectation. Do you right. think that the lay person in the first century was aware of this, of these kind of texts and, mm. and, or, I think, or maybe, I think they were, they would be in the air, but you'd have to be a person who is, I would say, you know, the person who'd be aware of it would be a pious Jew, someone who was engaged in conversation concerning God's uh, promises to Israel. They probably were at the synagogue every Shabbat. They were probably loved to talk about scripture and um, speculative, you know, readings of of the prophets and things like that. But here's 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 one thing. Like if let's say I let's say that's the text I had, the okay. Enoch text you just read, and I'm I live in the first century, and I go up and I see Yeshua. And then Yeshua says, "I'm the Messiah," you know, more or less. And then I'm gonna die and rise again, I, I would look at my Enoch and I go, uh, sorry, dude, I don't think you fit. I'm going to stick with what I find in Enoch, right? Maybe, That's the, maybe, the it's issue. Not even, maybe it's not oh, even, e, maybe it's not even Enoch. Maybe it's the text that, that this Enoch passage is pulling from, right? If, if the, if the, uh, average, uh, you know, Amharts, the the people of the land who weren't really trained in scripture or whatnot, but they went to the they went to the synagogue or or you know they were able to talk to more learned people. The text that the Enoch passage is drawing off of may have been somewhat you know known to even the layperson, right? This is what we expect, or maybe it wasn't even that. Maybe they didn't know the texts. Maybe it was more that they were just you know they asked their local rabbi, right? They asked the the, the local teacher, like, okay, so. And the local teacher saying, well, we're expecting one, and this is what he's going to do, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it, it, we're limited. That's why, you know, the approach that uh, Novitzen takes here and um, uh, Ogim, Ogimza, I don't know how to say it. I, I feel bad I don't know how to say uh, Ogema. Um, the approach they take is like, okay, 
instead of starting with speculation, what what can we at least say from the all the libraries of text that exist? And then how can we try to build a responsible, you know, conservative sketch of what this might be like? Of course, um, without being there firsthand, uh, that's all we have are these these kind of speculative reconstructions. But back to the point of, of Peter's pushback against Yeshua, for example. Um, the, the other one, Caleb, we were talking about earlier this week is where um, Yeshua I think this is in uh, Mark chapter, or it's in Mark, but I think it's in Matthew chapter 12. He's he's healing all these people, right? He heals a, a, a deaf mute, right? Right. So he can, or, he, or maybe he was blind. I, I'm trying to remember. He can, but now he can speak, he can hear, he can see. And the people are saying, this can't be the son of David, can it? Right. In other words, they have this idea of son of David, and they see these works, and they're thinking, could this be the son of David? Whisper, whisper, whisper. Right. So what's informing that question that they have? But then it says some Pharisees heard it, and they they heard this claim that he might be the son of David. And they say, no, he's casting out demons by the the master of demons, by Baalzebub. And, and so right there you have this setting. You see the works that Yeshua is doing. People are uh, – they're – inarguable, right? People see them and the, the, it's true and they can't deny it. Okay. Then they try to look in their, their closet of, of understanding, right? They look through all their different, uh, scriptural passages to try to make sense of it. And they go, wow, son of David seems to fit. Actually, then, what, you, have a re, then you have a religious authority saying, no, yeah. don't think son of David, think, um, Lord of demons. It's, well, and now the people have to go, wait a minute. Okay. It's unmistakable. This is either Son of David or the Lord of Demons, right? Of the or the uh, Baal Zebub, and uh, and that's why Yeshua says, "If I do this by the finger of God, then the kingdom of heaven is here." Right, right, okay. and so, and so uh, right there, the who is Messiah? What does Messiah look like? What are the expectations? All those things crash together in that account as well. So what you're talking about is Matthew twelve twenty three, but uh, it's interesting because Son of David seems to be shorthand for the Messiah, right? Yeah, Nine, exactly. That's what I mean. Like yeah. you were saying, uh, Messiah isn't necessarily always in these passages. Nine twenty-seven, and and as Yeshua passed on, no, wait, hang on, as, and as Yeshua passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, "Have mercy on us, Son of David." Twelve twenty-three, and all the people. I'm in Matthew twelve twenty-three, and all the people were amazed and said, "Can this be the Son of David?" Matthew 15, 22, and behold, a Canaanite woman from the, that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed mm, by a demon. Right. And she's a non-Jew. Right. <laughs> yeah. And she still knows, right? Matthew, right. Tw- Matthew, so, so there you yeah, Matthew 20, 30, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Yeshua was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And it keeps going. Son of David, son of David, son of David. So, it you know even when he's coming in, when he's coming in, right when on the donkey, twenty one nine, and the crowds that were went before him and that followed him were shouting, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord!" Right, right. So and of it's, course Matthew sets us up for this, right? When Matthew starts his gospel, son of right, son of David, son of Abraham. Right, right. He sets us up 
with uh, David being um, a core uh, center, right? The, not only you have Abraham and all the promises, and then you have that, the, the expansion of the Abrahamic blessing and covenant now circumscribed by David, and we have all the promises there, and, and then he's going to say exile, right? So we went from Abraham to David to Babylonian exile, which is where everything seems like it's fallen apart. That they, but the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, it seems to be lost and there's nothing going to happen. But then he says 14 generations to Messiah. And, and uh, we have to understand this uh, expectation of the Messiah as, as it's laid out beautifully for us in the beginning of Matthew. Um, very much as pro- from a promise theology, what we call promise theology perspective. Right. That uh, God's doing something in the world, it transcends our flesh and blood's capacity to grasp and to anticipate every move. We, he gives us the scriptures, and there's, uh, but our ability to understand the scriptures and to even believe the scriptures is, that's superintended by the Ruach HaKodesh, right? That's, that's the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, uh, back to the faith point. Yeah, we, you know, biblical faith is, a gift from heaven right to believe in God was a gift from heaven for Noah, just as it was for Abraham, just as it was for, you know, David, etc. So what Gary says in the chat room, uh, our administrator, he says, how much was Isaiah on their minds? No doubt. And yeah, actually, actually what's interesting is, is that Matthew begins the whole book with son of David, the book of the genealogy of Yeshua, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right. So in other words, it's like concentric circles. He wants us to see these. It's like a, it's like a horn that's getting bigger over time. Right. So I want to, so real quick, just for fun. So Matthew has it all throughout, right? The last mention Matthew has of son of David is in Matthew 22, 42. He says, saying, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David, right? And then uh, Mark only has it three but times. But then he challenges it. He says, well, how can he say, by David, by the Holy Spirit, in Psalm 110, yeah. uh, says, why does he call him Lord? When he says, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, so, who's David? If David's saying this psalm, who's he talking to? Who, who is David's Lord? And, it, and he takes them right to the edge where they're like, uh, maybe we don't understand the son of David idea as well as we thought we did. So... Um, Mark 10, 47, 40, and 10, 48 has son of David. And this is, uh, you know, they tell the man to stop, uh, stop crying out. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Mark 12, 35. And as Yeshua taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David, right? Now in Luke we have it a couple more times. We have Luke three thirty one. A lot of oh, these no, are it's just only, parallel. It's only parallel th- it's only three times in Luke, mm-hmm. but it's not in John. Interesting. And then uh, Evelyn in the chat room asks, "What about Ezekiel thirty seven twenty four, where it's not saying son of David, but David will rule over Israel?" That is uh, World English Bible translation. No, I that's right. Good point word. because the, obviously in Ezekiel's day, King David had been gone for what. 400 years, uh, 500 years almost, 400 years. 
So why would why would Yechezkel be prophesying of David uh, in right. the future? So yeah, these these things challenge our they challenge us. They're meant to challenge us. They're meant to to uh, to seek God to um, dive deeper into the Word. Um, but of course, reading Ezekiel on this side of the resurrection, you know, is different than you know maybe the way Ezekiel was read in Qumran, you know, etc. What's interesting is is that if you look at the books um, that he cites here of the first century, now what he does, what uh, Novenson does is on the on the uh, on page thirty four, which is the beginning of of chapter two, um, in a footnote, he mentions all of the ta- texts that um, are that the Messiah has formed here, right? And he says. Um, all the all the texts that have the word Messiah in them, yeah. or Christos, yeah, right. And, and uh, so you have Daniel, and then into the apocryphal. Oh, he says um, two hundred BCE to one hundred CE. Now uh, include relevant parts of Daniel, so that's going to be way be- before uh, two hundred. But anyway, another point: Psalm of Solomon, First Enoch, for Ezra to Baruch, and uh, and then in the uh, Qumran scrolls, I mean, there, there's tons of them. Um, there's probably, I would say, a dozen Qumran scrolls that he cites as well that have the word Messiah in them. So what, what this shows me, and then of course he says, and the 27 books of the New Testament. These are the texts on which I principally draw in this ch- chapter. So basically, what what even just what that footnote shows is that there's a significant idea formed within different pockets around Israel of what the Messiah would be. Now, they might not be the same, but there might be parallels, right? But what we do see is that even the lay people, even the non-Israelites, right, as we see the the people, the woman who comes out, she's not Jewish, but she she knows son of David, right? So there is this idea that that uh, this person is coming, he's going to rule, and that he's going to be the son of David, right? So there is this expectation that's been that's been formed now and is solidified in the first century. And now when when Yeshua shows up, now he has to reorientate this this word. He has to retrain almost or re-show them, no, what you have is might be true later, but there's other things that have to go first. You've missed you've missed some of the texts that need to be brought in, right? Mm-hmm. Agreed? Thoughts on that? No, oh, that's good. I was thinking, you know, one way to think of it in terms of a parable, it just occurred to me, um, and I'm, this is so I'm just just made this up, so forgive the roughness <laughs> of it. But I'm thinking of a metal. Let's I think of this as kind of like a metal detector, like a, a guy on a beach, or he's at an archaeological site, let's say, and he's got he's got the little earphones and he's got a little thing he's swinging. You've probably everybody seen this, and they kind of swing it, and that goes dee dee dee. Okay, let's say they have, uh, it's a metal detector that dials into. Any uh, every coin that, and we'll say that the coin is the word Messiah, right? So we're going to find all the places where we're going to scour the land for a certain coin, and all the co- the coin is just the word Messiah. Let's say, well, you're going to find it as he goes through the land. He finds the this Messiah coin, but it's used to. He'll find it in a place where, let's say, they were using it as a spacer, right? Like they weren't using the coin according to its design, they, but they were, they had some functionality. Okay. In this place, wow, I found a Messiah coin, but they were just using it to prop up a, the corner chair because it wasn't level. Right. Right. And then somewhere else, he, a guy finds this Messiah coin 
but it was used to, you know, there was a, a hole in the wall and he had it, you know, there was a mouse hole and he was using the coin to keep, you know, to block the hole so that the mice couldn't come. A kid was using it as a pretend monogram. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so the idea is it's the same coin used throughout all these different places, but there's a proper place, there's a true value that the coin has, and if the people who knew it who were using it as a, as a chair prop or as a to block a hole or the kid using it as a toy or as a little wheel to roll around – if those people wouldn't understand and appreciate the true value of the coin, they wouldn't be using it the way they're using it. Right. Right. That's, that's kind of the parable here of way I, of what they're trying to do here is at least I think Novinson kind of sets a stage for that is like, look, here's all the places where we find the word Messiah used. It's not used the same uniformly throughout. And there, if you look, there does seem to be in early Jewish and Christian literature, a cluster of, texts from Tanakh, the Genesis, the Numbers, the Isaiah, the Second Samuel, the Daniel, that these different groups seem to draw upon when they talk about the Messiah. However, none of those texts actually have the word Messiah in them. So we're kind of given these kind of strange starting point. What we have, for those who are in Messiah and are disciples of Yeshua, we have the privilege of seeing it from a, from a perspective that takes for granted that Yeshua defined what Messiah is in his person. Right. Um, not, by a, not by any one text, but by his person. And so our hermeneutic, or our starting point for interpreting the Messiah, starts and ends with the personhood of Yeshua yeah. and how he unfolded history. We're gonna, in other words, if we go back to that discussion between Peter and Simon Kepha, we side with Yeshua. I mean, we're going to say, sorry, Kepha. I might have, if I was next to you, I might have been as zealous as you are and say, you know, I, you know. but I have the, the privilege of coming and, and benefiting from that mistake. Hindsight, that yeah. Made. Exactly. And the fact that Yeshua uh, had his disciples write this story and preserve it for us, for our learning. Right. Um, I'm going to side with Yeshua, right? Uh, of course, say, well, Yeshua is the one who knows what the Messiah is, not Kepha here. So uh, those of us who are believers in Yeshua have these, a lot of these things are solved for us that help us look at the broader library, Qumran texts, Psalms of Solomon, you know, Enoch or whatever, second Ezra, whatever they, they are, second Baruch. Um, and we look at those and we go, okay, we can see they were, these people were, it was like they were using the coin to prop up a, a, a chair or to plug a hole or, or maybe they had an idea, okay, I'm going to keep it with these other coins. But in fact, the, the gold, the Messiah coin was gold and they were keeping it in a chest full of copper coins, right. thinking it belonged. They didn't see it was gold. So it's, they might've had, oh, it has some value, but the full value, the full value of the coin is known for those who are, who are in Messiah. That's, that's kind of the way I would think of it, think of describing it. Okay. I hope that this uh, discussion has been good for everyone. Remember uh, to go to TorahResource.com. You can find all sorts of great stuff there. And we're actually expanding uh, all the time our, our material base and, and uh, all sorts of stuff. We're doing all sorts of fun stuff right now and uh, more stuff to come. In fact, I commissioned my father the other day to write a five-part uh, article, and we'll see if he actually gets to it because I think it'd be really good for everyone. Uh, we'll see. Anyway, um, and don't forget to give us a call, 
253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. And of course, send us emails. We love to hear emails. from And thank everyone. you for praying for us. Right. Yes. Prayer is important. Prayer yes. Is important. Please. That's something someday, t- Caleb, we need to talk about prayer uh, from a doctrines of grace perspective. Ooh. Um, maybe down the road. Can I read you uh, something real quick then? Oh, sure. Just sure. real quick. Hang on, I got to pull it up here. Uh, like in other words, if every if 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 you believe in predestination, why pray at all, right? You know what right. what good? So are you going to change God's mind, right? So this there's a whole discussion to be had around um, that topic. So here is what I wrote. Uh, these are my notes on uh, Exodus eight. Uh, this is for the small group that I'm a part of. I wrote uh, some uh, some uh, notes for last week. This is the conclusion of my uh, of my notes. Perhaps one of the most overlooked aspects of the plagues and the Exodus story in general is the extreme power of prayer. God does not move while Moses speaks to Pharaoh. Rather, he directs Moses and Aaron to do specific actions. And then once a deal has been made with Pharaoh, God does not relent until Moses, Atar, prayed to yod Even the person who spoke face-to-face with God did not expect the Holy One to simply act. God said he would do something, yet still, our narrative makes it clear that Moses prayed to God in order for those for these things to take place. Would God have sta- stayed true to his word? Of course. This is a shining example of the relational aspect God has with his people. God wants us to be in con- constant communication with him. Certainly, it was God that lifted the plagues from Egypt. But the means by which God would bring these events about was through the prayer of the righteous. If we see this story as a direct prophecy of our own individual salvation from salvation to sin, to slavery, to righteousness, we must realize the significance of prayer and how God longs for and requi- longs for and requires us to pray. Mm. Good, yeah. So, yeah, I agree with you. We should do something on prayer. Uh, prayer is important. So be in prayer for us. We, we, uh, we ask for your, we covet your prayers for sure. All right, next week, we're going to uh, do something that has to do with the Messiah. Maybe we'll actually look at uh, the pseudo pig or the, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, the Apocrypha, something, who knows? I don't know what we'll do, but we'll do something fun. So uh, tune in with us and uh, send us your emails. Happy Arbor Day yeah. in Israel. And uh, we'll be talking about something that glorifies our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.